Good morning, Cedar Creek Church. How's everybody doing? Uh, once more. How's everybody doing, Cedar Creek Church family? That's more like it. That's what I like to hear. You guys got a little bit of crazy in you. I appreciate that. In all seriousness, thank you guys so much for being here to come and celebrate what the Lord has done in our lives this morning on a Sunday morning. Um, whether you're a first-time guest or whether you've been coming here for years, I'm just grateful that you're here. Uh, whether you're here at our Banks Mill campus or here means uh, the Ridge or the um, West Campus or even all the way in Hookstown, Pennsylvania. I uh, hope you guys are doing well or if you're joining us online. Whatever way that you're here, we're glad you're here. Um, this morning at our Banks Mill campus, we, we have had the incredible opportunity to hear from our Centerpoint band. Um, and whether you heard from your Centerpoint band this morning or whether you heard from uh, your regular Sunday morning band. Um, let's just give all of them a round of applause for the incredible work they do. I gotta say, it makes doing this so much easier to know that there's worship going on at uh, all of our campuses, preparing us to hear a message that the Lord has from us today, and I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be a vessel for that. Um, and I actually, the reason that I am the worship director here at the Banksville campus, the reason I'm passionate about worshiping through music and proclaiming his name as worthy is because I came through the Centerpoint band. The reason I learned to play music, the, the way that I became so passionate about what I do is because there was a series of leaders that was willing to invest in me as not only a musician, but a believer and follower in Jesus Christ. So if you serve on Sunday morning, I just want to help you to understand that your service makes an impact. What you do on a Sunday morning, Sunday night, uh, throughout the week as home group leaders, the investments that you make in the people around you make a difference and you never know. You very well could be uh, investing in and loving the next leader for Cedar Creek Church, whether it's a campus pastor or worship director or a new home group leader. And in fact, I might even go so far as to say that we ought to be and we should be raising up the next generation of leaders. So thank you, Cedar Creek Church, for being the kind of place where we can invest in young leaders like the band that we had up here on Sunday morning uh, and the Centerpoint groups that are meeting uh, at our other campuses as well. Um, if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, we've been going through this Faith with Benefit series, and it's a series where we've been walking through the book of Galatians and looking at some of the benefits of having faith. And I wanna be really specific about the goal of what we're doing here because it's easy to get confused. So, so listen, what we are doing or the goal of what we are doing is not to create some kind of pitch for Christianity. For us to be able to kind of talk about the different things that are part of the benefits package of Christianity, where if you join up, if you come join this team, if you come to this church, then you'll receive all of these benefits, and that's why it's worth being Christian, because you get lots of good stuff. That's not what we're saying at all. We're not creating a benefits package. Because in all honesty, and I don't want you to be confused or unaware of this, one of the things that Christianity promises, one of the things that following Jesus promises is suffering, is hurt is sacrifice from yourself and from things in your life. You may have to lay down things from your lifestyle, so I don't want you to be confused about that. But what Paul specifically wants to do as we've been walking through the book of Galatians is express to us that you have one of two choices. You can either try to earn your way back to God by adhering to the law and behaving as well as you possibly can and forever fall short over, shirt, forever fall short, everyone, for the rest of eternity over and over and over again, and that can be the narrative of your life. Or instead of trying to adhere to the law, you can choose to have faith. 
So it's a comparison between these two options where you can either have faith that the promise of God is true and that he can bring you salvation by his own power, or you can continue to try to live out a narrative of failure by trying to achieve the promise of salvation yourself. Those are the two options that the church at Galatia was faced with. And those are the two options that you and I are still faced with even today. And I think as we've been looking at some of the benefits of having faith as opposed to Uh, the lack of benefits that we find in just trying to achieve righteousness through the law, the biggest benefit of our faith overall is just the opportunity to be in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself is the greatest benefit that we have through faith. So for those of you that don't know me, um, a little bit about myself as we jump into Galatians 4, which is the passage for this week specifically. Um, I have a background in biblical studies uh, about, holy cow, two and a half years ago, I graduated, and it's flown by, goodness gracious. Um, two and a half years ago, I graduated from Anderson University with a degree in theology and biblical studies. Um, basically, what that means is um, I got to do uh, what most of us should be doing in general, uh, and then got a degree in it, is all that means. Um, basically, what we would do is we would look at the big, uh, biblical text and learn guiding principles that could help us uh, exegete or interpret scripture in a way that was responsible to what the uh, original authors meant to say. In other words, we try to learn rules that can help guide us in uh, understanding truth from God's word um, instead of trying to inject our own truth into God's word because that's a dangerous thing to do. And one of the principles that we learned is that it can often be helpful to understand the historical and literary context, the things that were going around both the author and the audience. Now, this is a letter, and people don't generally just write letters apropos of nothing. They usually have a reason for wanting to reach out to somebody, um, even if it's just to check up on them. Just like the way we make phone calls, we usually have a specific reason for calling. And Paul and his audience were no different. So I believe that understanding what was going on at the time that he wrote this letter can be really helpful for understanding what he has to say in this letter. So that's what I did. I sat down, and I I tried to do some research and find out what was going on in the background uh, of Paul's letter, what was going on, not only for Paul himself, but especially for the Galatians to understand what this uh, passage, Galatians 4, could teach us. And as I sat down to learn a little bit more about what was going on for the Galatians, I started to notice that there are a lot of similarities between the church of Galatia and the modern church in America. Just some of the, some of the similarities were, were these. First of all, there were tons of uh, influences and a complex system of culture Um, for the church at Galatia, and I think that's true for you and I too. You see, in the region of Galatia, there were these native or indigenous peoples called the Gauls, and then they were eventually conquered by the Greek empire, and they instilled Greek culture into these Gauls. Afterwards, the Greek empire fell, and then the Roman empire came along and did the same exact thing, and all of a sudden, there's a lot of Roman culture that's influencing uh, the church at Galatia. So you have all of these layers of uh, pagan religion and culture, going on at the same time that is distracting and confusing the people of Galatia. And that's one of the reasons why in verse uh, 9, Paul specifically warns against these elemental spirits. That's the the NRSV translation. Um, Some of you may be holding ESV or NSV or something like that, and it says something like the fundamental principles. You have to understand for um, Greek religious philosophical ideology, there really wasn't that much of a difference. Um, It was these gods that they worshipped that were embodied by forces of nature in the world, right? Um, Like the god of the sun, the god of wind, these kind of elemental principles that were worshipped as gods. 
So these elemental spirits, these elemental principles, the, these are the things that are distracting the Galatians. And then we're not done yet with the outside influences because after the church at Galatia was established, these people from James came down from the church in Jerusalem and began to preach what Paul was opposing in his letter. Began saying that it's not just faith in Jesus Christ, but instead it's a, a faith in Jesus Christ plus some of the Jewish um, religious and cultural ideas, specifically circumcision. You have to do something physically in order to show that you are aligned with God and his people, and then you can obtain salvation. Not only do you have to have faith in Jesus, you also have to adopt the Jewish culture. That's what Paul's writing against. So you have all of these different things going on, all of these different cultural influences. And I think for you and I, it's easy for us to fall victim to that as well. It is easy for you and I to, without even knowing it, begin to marry our faith and our system of beliefs to things like a political agenda, to things like family values or traditional cultural values. And listen, there's nothing necessarily wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. What I am saying is if you allow those to dictate or inform what you believe about the gospel before you allow the word of God to do so, before you allow other believers to do so who you love and trust, and that's when we can get into dangerous grounds. So that's, that's one of the similarities between us and the church at Galatia. Here's another one. They were tempted to stray from their faith by people that they trusted, right? These, these people from James that came down from the church in Jerusalem were not just some out-of-town Joe Schmoes that they didn't trust or believe in. These were people that they looked up to and trusted as an authority for their faith. And yet they were the very people who were leading them astray. In fact, in the region of Galatia, there was a church uh, at Antioch, Antioch Pisidia, which you don't need to know much about that except for the fact that in the first century, that church was considered the sister church for the church in Jerusalem. So in a sense, the region of Galatia would have been considered under the jurisdiction of the Jerusalem church. They would have felt some responsibility to be checking up on the church at Galatia. And as they were checking up on them, what they would do is try to uh, encourage them uh, very intensely, if you will, um, to adopt some of the Jewish cultural um, principles, some of the national identity of, uh, is, or not Islam, uh, Judaism. So you have all of these different outside influences, and they're being trusted or tempted by people they trust. And I think you and I, for you and I, that's what happens most of the time too. It's not some random person that we just run into on the street that says there is no God and Jesus can't save you. We generally don't trust that person. We don't know them. We don't know what their background is. But sometimes it's those people that we trust and look up to that tempt us and encourage us to stray from things we know to be true because we've read them in the word of God and we have heard it proclaimed by the spirit that dwells within us. Most of the time it's people we trust, not people we just randomly run into. And then the third similarity that I noticed as I was preparing for this week was the fact that uh, the, the people at the Church of Galatia wanted to revert to something they were familiar with. They wanted to go back to something that they had had years of experience with. And in this case, uh, if you remember, I talked about those three layers of um, culture that were pagan culture. And the reason I brought that up specifically is because in pagan culture and in pagan, pagan religions, what they would do was uh, they had a sacrificial system, not unlike the um, Jewish faith, where they served these gods who were capricious and emotional and would pour out their wrath on you like that if you didn't behave the way you ought to. Uh, so they would burn these sacrifices, um, and a lot of first century and before resources tell us that um, they burned the sacrifices so that they could give the gods a meal, which uh, is not unlike me. If I'm uh, pretty hungry, I get grumpy as well, so 
that checks out. So the idea is that they would burn it and the fragrant uh, smells would go up to the gods and they would uh, have their, their rage um, assuaged. They would have it um, just kind of placated to where they're not mad anymore because they burn a sacrifice. So the idea is that there was this contractual obligation between uh, the servants of the gods and the gods to where if you followed the rules, if you did what you were supposed to, then you would be in right relationship with the gods and they wouldn't pour out their wrath. Does that sound familiar? Isn't it exactly what the Jewish people are trying to teach the church at Galatia to do? If you can follow the rules just right, if you can adopt some of these uh, cultural principles from the Jewish faith, then you'll be in right relationship with the gods and everything will be fine. You won't have the wrath of God poured out on you. I think we do the same thing. It's easy for us to revert to things that we're comfortable with, maybe to even fall back into old lifestyles that we used to live um, before we knew who Jesus was. And the reason I point out all these similarities is, is simple. It's, it's just this, because this stuff matters. What Paul is specifically trying to do is in a place, in a culture, in a time when the church at Galatia was being tempted to compromise their faith by outside influences, Paul wants to write a letter that can bolster and encourage the Galatians in the real gospel, the true gospel that Paul had preached that could withstand time and trial and outside influences. And I think the truth is that all of us in the church from time to time can use a reminder of what the true gospel is and how we can build our faith in a way that won't be affected by outside influences in a way that causes us to compromise the central tenets of our faith. It's not necessarily anything wrong with allowing things from uh, outside Christianity to help you understand the world around you as long as it's continuous and congruent with what we leave or, or learn in the word of God, but it's those things that are incongruent with our faith that we have to be careful of because this stuff matters. And for Paul, the center of the issue the way that he decides he's going to explain how we can build a faith that is steadfast and won't give way at the sign of first temptation to compromise it is this. This is a central issue of all of Galatians. Christ and faith in the promise of salvation that Christ has brought is the only thing sufficient for salvation. And the law is not. Again, two options. The law along with faith in Christ, or just pure, uninhibited, unadulterated faith in Christ and nothing else. Those are your two options. And for Paul, he wants us to understand that we can have a strong faith by recognizing that it's not cultural principles of Judaism. It's not adherence or obedience to the law. Instead, it's complete faith in Christ himself and nothing else. And in order to express this, the way in which he tells this truth is by uh, doing what I think is really helpful, which is placing it in terms of a story. Just like when uh, you wanted your kids to learn something, uh, it was easy to, to kind of crack open um, a parable or some kind of book uh, where they could read a story and understand some kind of fundamental truth about it. I think narrative is a really, really powerful tool for expressing some kind of spiritual truth, and that's exactly what Paul does. And in fact, he looks at a very specific historical uh, account of a man named Abraham. So he sets up his argument for the central idea that Christ alone and faith in the promise is sufficient by talking about this guy, Abraham. For those of you who don't know Abraham, Abraham is the guy from way back in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis who uh, God asked to pick up everything that he owned and move away from his hometown so that he could establish a great nation. And the Lord said, uh, if you have faith in me, then I will bless uh, your descendants and make an incredible nation out of your children. 
Now, uh, for a Jew that was hearing that in the first century, they would have heard that story and immediately thought, right, Abraham, who had Isaac, who had Jacob, who had 12 sons that eventually became the nation of Israel. That's us. The recipients of the promise of salvation is the Jewish people because they have a direct lineage to Abraham. But then Abraham starts using this as a story to remind the people at Galatia who are mostly non-Jewish that faith alone is the way unto salvation. So here's, here's the curious thing. If a lineage or being a part of the family of Abraham is what gives you an inheritance of the promise, then why would Paul use that specific story of Abraham to talk to a bunch of Gentiles or non-Jewish people about how to gain salvation? How, how does he reconcile this? Or what does the story of Abraham have to do with a bunch of Gentiles? And I think we find our answer in verses four through five. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Paul is saying that through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, people who are non-Jewish have been included into that family of Abraham. And by that means, by being included in that family through the work of Christ and adoption, that's how we obtain salvation. It's through faith in that promise that Christ is the one who brings it. And that is true for you and I as well. You and I, we believe as Christ followers, uh, have been adopted into the family of God. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. And that's how this story of Abraham has to do with us. And so I want to focus on is this benefit of adoption for faith over against the law. And more specifically, in addition to adoption, I want to focus on the practical outworking of what adoption means for you and I as believers. Because the title is useless if nothing actually changes in our lives. If I walk around telling people I'm the president of the United States, um, it doesn't mean anything if I don't actually have any power uh, or the sweet comb over. You know, it, it doesn't mean anything. It's just a title. It's useless. I'm going to get in so much trouble for that one. <laughs> anyway, so and here's why I think uh, we should focus on the practical application because I think that's what Paul does. Uh, in, in verses 1 and 2, which is not on your outline, but I'll read it to you. It says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. It's like if someone is the recipient of an inheritance or is supposed to be the recipient of a, an inheritance or the oldest son, but they're too young to actually receive the inheritance. They're essentially in the same place, practically speaking, as the slave. The title doesn't mean anything. There's no difference between an heir and a slave when they're underage and can't actually receive the inheritance. What matters is the practical outworking of adoption in our lives. So that's what I want to focus on. And uh, we're going to focus in on, on three specific ways that adoption changes our lives and the way we act as believers. And uh, in true Cedar Creek Church fashion, um, I think especially what Paul emphasizes is the way that adoption changes relationships in our lives. The way we interact with others, the way others interact with us, and so on and so forth. So let's, let's get into it. Let's do it. Uh, the, the first way that adoption affects uh, our lives on a practical basis is that adoption affects how we interact with other believers. It affects how we interact with other believers. Bear with me because I'm going to give you a little, a little 
very brief uh, history lesson. Um, I promise it's going somewhere. <laughs> about 2,300 years ago, so a little bit before the time of Christ, about 300 years, a little bit less than 300 years ago, there was a guy by the name of Aristotle. If you heard of Aristotle, let me hear you say, yep. Right, he's pretty popular. He was the, um, the trainee of Plato, who was the trainee of Socrates, these guys that were kind of big names in uh, Greek philosophy. And Aristotle wrote this book uh, 2,300 years ago called On Rhetoric. Rhetoric is like a, a method for speaking or writing in a way that is convincing. So when someone employs these principles of rhetoric that Aristotle wrote about, they usually do it to the end of having someone convinced by something, and not just an idea, but the benefit of an action. They want to actually inspire their readers uh, from their rhetorical strategies of, of having some kind of physical behavioral response. And, and Paul, kind of throughout the book of Galatians, has been utilizing these methods of uh, rhetoric that Aristotle wrote about. If you're getting bored, don't worry. I'm so close to getting there, right? Uh, one of the rhetorical strategies is ethos. It's this appeal to the ethical standing of the author himself, and I think Paul has done that pretty well. He's basically said in Galatians, 1, or in Galatians 2, you know what? If you want an authority on what it means to be Jewish, then look no further than me. My ethical standing is higher than anyone else in the first century around. I was a Jew among Jews born on this special day and I followed all of the laws and I was a fierce persecutor of the Christian church because I believed it wasn't fundamentally Jewish. So if you want an authority on what it means to be Jewish, then that's me. So he's established his ethical standing and then he moves on to logos. Logos is when you're appealing to the logical structure of the argument itself uh, in order to try to convince somebody that something is true. And he's done that in Galatians 3 by saying there was an old covenant and now there's a new covenant. So look at what covenantal principles mean and that'll help you understand the way that God interacts with us. So now he's about to flip switches and he moves on to pathos. Pathos is an appeal to emotion. For lack of a better way to uh, express it, it's plucking on your heartstrings, pulling on those emotions to try to help you understand that there's an, an emotional connection between you and the behavior that is encouraged. If you're, if you're having trouble understanding it, pathos is like when your mama calls you. She says, you know, I, I carried you around for nine months. She says, you know, I, I put a roof over your head and warm meals on the table for decades before you moved out. The least you could do, my precious son, is come to a family dinner. That kind of thing. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about. My mother uh, never does that. That came out sarcastic, but I really mean that. She doesn't do that. Sorry, mom. <laughs> But it's, it's this emotional appeal to help people understand that there's an emotional connection between what the author is encouraging you to do and how you should respond. And the reason that Paul has switched gears to that is because he's about to make a request. That's why in verse 12, he says, brothers and sisters, I entreat you. Entreat is another word for request or ask of you. And make no mistake, it's, it's not an accident that the idea of adoption is established right before Paul makes a request. You know why? Because he establishes the idea that there's a familial uh, connection and relationship between all believers that is the foundation upon which he asked this. He says, listen, I, I feel okay in asking you to do this for me because you and I are brothers and sisters. In other words, the way that we have been adopted or the fact that we have been adopted changes the way that you and I treat each other in two really big ways. Take a look at verses 15 through 16. It says, for I testify to you that if possible, you, the church at Galatia, would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. 
Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? No idea what Paul would have done if he had just been standing there holding their eyeballs. I don't know why he goes that direction with this passage. But I think what he's trying to express is that there is an emotional connection between himself and the people that he's writing to, their family. And because they're family, he feels okay in saying, you took care of me, so now let me take care of you. That's why the very first thing that adoption changes right there under that first blank is accountability when others take care of me. Paul has said, because you and I are brothers and sisters, I feel okay in saying that you guys would have gouged your daggum eyes out and handed them to me if I needed them. Now, there have been biblical scholars that look specifically at that passage and point to it as a a literary motif that's found in other places like uh, the story of Oedipus that show when you gouge out your eyes, it's this crazy emotional response to um, tragedy. Or other scholars point out the fact that by the time Paul's writing the letter to the Galatians, he's already writing in this really big script because he has trouble with his eyes. So it's this idea that they would have given him uh, their eyes if it would have helped with the physical ailment that he had. Uh, so the idea is that they want to meet a practical need. I don't, I don't know why he chose that phrasing, but what I do know is that he feels okay in making a request of them because they're brothers and sisters. That's accountability. Take a look at verses 19 through 20. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Between gouging out eyes and childbirth, it's a pretty bloody passage. (laughs) But I think what Paul's really trying to express here is the flip side of accountability, which is responsibility, when I take care of others. Paul says that he would take responsibility for the church at Galatia, for the people there, in the same way that we should take care of a child which is our own. He's relating his relationship to them as one that is so intimate and personal that that should teach us something about the way the church should interact with each other. Here's the practical application of this idea. I just want to ask you in all honesty, and I struggle with this so much because it's a vulnerable place to be, but when's the last time that you allowed someone else to hold you accountable for your actions and your decisions? Or when's the last time that you had the boldness and the confidence and the love between a brother and sister that uh, all Christ followers ought to have to be able to walk up to somebody and say, I love you too much to allow you to continue your behavior because it's hurting you and I care too much because you're confused and you're lost and I wanna bring you back to the hope of the gospel. When's the last time that you took responsibility for someone else or allowed someone to take responsibility for you? And if that hasn't happened in a while, maybe it's because you have been unwilling, like myself, you've been unwilling to be emotionally vulnerable enough for people to see the real you and hold you accountable and vice versa. But here this morning, church, I wanna encourage you to be willing to be a little bit more relational and emotional, emotionally vulnerable so that we can hold each other accountable and continue to spur each other on through Christ because that's the kind of relationship that adoption has given us. One of the best ways that you can do that is put yourself in a home group. I know it gets said so often up here, but that is the kind of place that you can be emotionally vulnerable with people that you know you can trust and love. But just put yourself in a place where you can be held accountable and take responsibility for other believers. And the only place that happens is in authentic community. Here's the second way that adoption affects uh, you and I as believers. Adoption affects how God interacts with us. 
It affects how God interacts with us. Uh, can, can you guys be gracious with me? <laughs> I wrote this point maybe um, three quarters of the way through the week, um, and then my wife and I drove up to Maryland this weekend. Um, and after doing some thinking and some praying, I realized that the point that I had made for this sermon was actually not consistent at all with what Paul was saying. And I'm, I'm making a correction because I'm not perfect, <laughs> and I made a mistake, but here's what I truly believe, and here's what I think I've learned from this passage. Adoption affects how God interacts with us in this way, by leaving it exactly the same as it's been throughout all of human history. <laughs> you see, at first I was thinking that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus completely shifted the paradigm for how God interacts with us. And I felt safe in saying that before I looked a little bit closer at the passage. But here's the truth. The reason that Paul uses the story of Abraham is because that relationship hasn't changed from the beginning. The book of Genesis says that uh, Abraham's faith was accredited to him or given to him as righteousness. It was the faith first and then the righteousness. It's not as if there was a time in human history where through adherence to the law, people could have salvation. Before Jesus, uh, when Moses brought the law, people could be faithful to the law and get salvation. That was never the case. It was always through the promise of God that we received salvation and faith in that promise of God. So really the truth is that it hasn't changed, but you know what has changed? Our perspective and understanding of it. Because you see, before the death and resurrection of Christ, uh, people stood on this side of history with this being the crucifixion and resurrection and said, there's something coming. There's something coming in the future that the Lord has promised that will make a way for us in salvation, and that's the crucifixion of God. The only difference for you and I is that now we stand on this side of the event and say something has come. That's what it means to be a witness for the gospel. Pointing back to a retrospective event where Christ was crucified and resurrected because that's what brings us our salvation. That's the only thing that changes our perspective. The reason I know that is because look at verse 9a. But now that you have come to know, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again? Paul wants to shift the focus away from you knowing who God is to help you understand that it's who, how God knows you. Everything in this situation, in this relationship is completely passive on our part. We're not doing anything to earn it. That's what adoption means. You don't do anything to become adopted as a child who becomes adopted. You can't adopt yourself. Trust me, I did research. There's, there's nothing out there that says you can adopt. Here's the thing. I, okay, um, full, full disclosure, I had spent maybe three or four hours straight preparing for the sermon, and I got to this point, and I was a little bit bored and tired, so I pulled out Google and just did a Google search to see what would come up. Can you legally adopt yourself? Um, not only did I, well, I'll just say this there were no results. All of the internet had nothing for can you or can't you legally adopt yourself. Do you know why? Because it's a completely ridiculous idea. <laughs> of course, it's impossible to legally. Can you imagine the results of that? If you adopted yourself and somebody came up to you and said, who's your mom and dad? Who's your people? Where do you come from? And you looked at him and said, I am my father and my wife is my mother. Ooh, speaking of Oedipus, that's weird. That is too weird. I've always had a fear of becoming my father, but that's just crazy. <laughs> oh, they're going to kill me for that one. <laughs> but in all seriousness, the whole idea of adoption is completely and totally passive. 
You don't do anything. You just allow yourself to be adopted. And that's what Paul is trying to express. You can't adopt yourself. It's completely God's work. Take a look at verses 6 and 7. It says, And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son or daughter. And if a son or daughter, then an heir through God. God has sent his spirit into us. We didn't gain that spirit. We didn't earn that spirit. So here's the practical application of this idea. Stop trying. I don't know if you expected when you came here this morning to hear uh, somebody preaching on stage, standing behind a pulpit saying, give up everyone. But that's what I'm telling you. You can't earn the promise. You can't achieve the promise of salvation. All you can do is have faith that God is the one who provides that salvation through the promise. In fact, uh, this is where we can turn again to the story of Abraham. You see, Abraham was promised that his descendants would be the way through which God blesses him and brings salvation. And ultimately, that is what happened in a sense, because through his descendants, Christ was born. But here's where things get a little hairy, specifically with the Abraham story. When that was promised to him, Abraham and his wife Sarah were way past the natural years of childbirth. Sarah was completely barren. She couldn't have any children. So Abraham began to get nervous as time went by and he wasn't given any children. So his wife, Sarah, comes up to him and says, listen, we have this slave girl. Why don't you have a child with her? That way we can at least have a son. We can do our part. We can help God make those promises come true because we'll have someone to actually start a family with. So that's what he does. He has a son with um, the the handmaid of uh, Sarah, But God says, listen, the fact that you have tried to get this for yourself means that you have robbed me of an opportunity to do, or tried to rob me of the opportunity to do something miraculous. If you're the one earning it, it's no longer miraculous. I want to reveal my might through doing something incredible, unheard of, and unnatural, supernatural. So stop trying. Stop trying to get the promise or earn the promise on your own because when you allow yourself to be adopted instead of trying to adopt yourself, people can look at you and see the miraculous might of God. So stop trying. And the third way that adoption affects uh, our lives in a practical way is this. Adoption affects how we interact with unchurched people. There, there are passages kind of scattered around in the book of Galatians that talk about being freed from the law. Uh, this idea that um, because we have salvation through faith in the promise, we're no longer slaves to the law. Instead, you and I are free. And, and the question then becomes, and it's asked in several different places where Paul talks about this in a um, rhetorical sense, well, to what extent? Because it's easy to grab that, right, and run with it and say, so if I'm free from the law, I can literally do whatever I want and nothing matters because I have salvation through faith in Christ and not through my behaviors, so why don't I just do whatever? And Paul's very careful to say, yes, you have freedom, but here's the extent to which you have freedom from the law. You have freedom from the law so that you can serve and love the people around you in a way that's effective for helping them understand that God loves them and desires to be in relationship with them. Specifically, when Paul was writing these letters, the idea that he had in mind was um, eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. You have freedom from the law because under the Jewish law, you could not under any circumstances eat meat sacrificed to idols because it was um, a way for other cultures to point to the 
uh, nation of Israel and say, well, you, I mean, you eat the meat, sacrifice the idols just like everyone else, so what's the difference between you and us? But God wanted to set them apart and make them look different, so he said, don't eat meat, sacrifice the idols. Then um, in the New Testament, because we've been freed from the law, instead, Paul points out, go ahead, eat, eat meat, sacrifice the idols if it means that the table you're sitting at when you eat it is with a lost person that doesn't know who Jesus is. Eat meat, sacrifice to idols because you've been freed from the law, but your freedom from the law is based on and completely dependent on your ability to use that freedom to spread the gospel. That's why Paul says this in verse 12, Brothers and sisters, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also become as you were. Are you willing to sacrifice things that are not central tenets of our faith so that you can identify with and commune with and spend time with people who don't agree with you, who have different uh, life circumstances and beliefs? Adoption as an idea should remind us that the gospel is the story of outsiders being brought in, not insiders being made more inside. Adoption should be a constant reminder from us that the gospel is a recurring narrative of outsiders being brought into the promise. That's what adoption is in its nature. It's taking people who were not a part of a family and making them a part of the family. Take a look at verses 28 through 29 in Galatians 4. It says, now you brothers like Isaac, that's the son that uh, Abraham had with Sarah, are children of the promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. I missed this the first six times I read this passage. It went right over my head, but then I took a closer look and saw what was really going on. Paul is saying that the child of the promise, the descendant of Abraham that has received the inheritance is uh, Isaac, and Isaac is what uh, Paul is calling the Gentiles. Here's why that's important. Because for thousands of years, the Jewish people, because of their national identity, believed that a direct uh, descendantship to Abraham was the means through which they received the promise. God promised Abraham that the sons of Abraham would be blessed with salvation. Um, That's who we are because of that lineage. So we have salvation because of our national identity. Now, what Paul is saying is the Gentiles are the ones who are more like the sons of Abraham through adoption than you are. Let me put that into perspective for you. Um, There's been a lot of uh, kind of unrest and um, anger surrounding the way that our uh, President Donald Trump responded uh, to a bunch of reporters after the summit with the Russian leader, Vladimir Putin. Um, I have no desire to comment on that politically, mostly because I'm ill-informed and I don't know uh, what the political climate is like right now. Um, But I do know that there was a lot of unrest because he wasn't harsh enough against uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, This, what Paul is saying, would be the social, cultural, and political equivalent of if Donald Trump came out, looked uh, a whole room full of American um, journalists directly in the face and said, you know, when you think about it, Russia is really, Russia and the Russian government is really more American than Americans are. Some of you are already mad with me, and I'm just leaving it as an example. Please don't find me after the service and beat me up. That's not what I believe, but we need to understand exactly how 
politically, religiously, nationally offensive this would have been. And here's why that matters for us, because I believe that this church, our community ought to be looking at this church for the people who worship and serve here and be nothing short of offended and angry at the kind of people that we allow to worship and serve here. Because adoption reminds us that the gospel is a story of outsiders being brought in. So when's the last time that you sat down with an outsider and brought them in? told them the story of adoption and reminded them or helped them understand that there is no one that is too far gone, too broken, that cannot receive the love of God. The people in this community ought to be looking to our church and be outraged at the people that we proclaim that gospel to. Instead, we've traded that in, we've traded that calling in so that we can proclaim the gospel to the people that look and earn roughly the same as we do. It's time, church, for you and I to mobilize in a way that would affect the face of this planet because we're willing to say that the adoption brought about through Jesus Christ brings outsiders in. That's the gospel that you and I have been charged with proclaiming. That's the gospel that you and I have been charged with being a witness to. Adoption affects the way we interact with unchurched people. And I want to finish with this last verse right here. This is from Galatians 4.27, where Paul is quoting a piece of the Old Testament. And he's talking specifically about the difference between Abraham and Sarah. He says, Sarah was barren, so it was miraculous that she was able to bear a child. And this is what he says. This is from a psalm. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. If you're broken this morning, if you feel like you have nothing left, if you feel like no one in this world could ever love you because of your past and your mistakes, I want to remind you that your brokenness is an opportunity for God to show his miraculous might. The more broken you are, all the more glory that God gets. It's not the perfect that are in need of a physician. It's not the healthy that are in need of a physician, but those who are broken and hurting and sick. So if you are that person this morning, I am asking you, I am begging you, I am entreating you as Paul did. Lean into the promise of God. Have faith that he can provide a way for salvation because that's what he has called you into. A brand new life out of darkness and into light. He has called you to nothing shorter. Believe that he can provide believe and trust that there is a way for salvation and that way is not by behaving well enough. That way is by faith in the promises of God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here as adopted sons and daughters, to be able to worship your name and the incredible things that you have done for us. For you are worthy of all honor and praise, God. We have experienced your love in our lives as sons and daughters and you've brought us in and you've helped us to remember that we are no longer slaves to the law, but instead we've been freed from that so that we can be sons and daughters. So Father, call us out of our comfortable chairs so that we can reach out into the community and those who are hurting and broken. Call us out to be uncomfortable so that we can love and serve those people and bear with us the gospel of hope that you have given us. It's what you've called us to. And Father, teach us not to be content with anything short of what you've called us to. You are holy and worthy of all honor and praise. Thank you so much for making us sons and daughters. Thank you so much for your adoption that teaches us that we can hold each other accountable.
Thank you so much for your adoption that reminds us that the gospel is a story of outsiders being brought in. It's in your name we pray. Amen.